Welcome to the Run Run Live 4.0 podcast, where we plumb the daily adventure of endurance sports. Let us seize this precious moment together and squeeze the life from it like a golden lemon sent to us fresh today from the emissaries of the gods. Terribly happy guy Then he ate a moldy pumpkin pie Then he thought that he just couldn't die So Ned, he laughed so hard and made him cry Made him Hello, my friends, and welcome to the Run Run Live podcast, episode 399, 4-399. This is Chris, your host, and today we are going to get a bit emotional. We're going to go to the dogs, so to speak. Our themes are Buddy the Wonder Dog and Courage. So one of our longtime friends inquired how Buddy the Old Wonder Dog is doing. So today we are going to tell some Buddy stories. In the interview today, I invited Gary back to talk about his new book on running, The Mindful Runner. And I thought the timing was good with the holidays to give you another gift option. What can you buy for the runners that won't, you know, that they won't hate, that they already don't already have? A book, a new book. So Gary has one of those dream jobs of writing about running for a living. And I would love to have that job, just go run and write about it. I guess I do have that job, but have that as my only job, but I'd have to find a way to become independently wealthy in order to afford to do that, because as it turns out, words are cheap, <laughs> in my experience, anyhow. I'm doing fine. I haven't made much weight loss progress, but I'm eating healthier. The weight will come off as I start building up the miles in my spring campaigns, I'm working with Rachel to lose a little bit of weight and get my nutrition on track. It's hard through the holidays, but I'm giving myself a long runway into the spring. So even with setbacks, I can ease my way into a good race weight for a good run at Boston. And I'm working with Coach right now to build some strength. I feel like my core is not as strong as I'd like. My legs fatigue way faster than I think they should, and I'm trying to figure out why or if there's anything I can do about it. My aerobic fitness is good, but my legs just can't get near that aerobic threshold, that aerobic barrier, and hold it like they used to. So I actually went to the PT last week to get his opinion, and, you know, he said there's nothing wrong with me per se. I'm just getting old. So, hey, I'm healthy. I'm not injured. Keep at it. With the shorter days, I've been pushing my runs out into the evening, and I find that the evenings are kind of a dead time for me anyhow. I'm too mentally fried to do anything creative, so I find it pretty nice and head-clearing to get out on the road in the cold and the dark, you know, with my, my headlamp and my flashlight. It's quite peaceful. And sometimes the stars are out, or the moon, and it's very pretty. So like I said, we're going to spend some time talking about my old running partner, Buddy the Wonder Dog, today. He's doing okay. He's here with me now, sleeping in the corner. And the old saying is that you can't teach an old dog new tricks. I beg to differ. You can teach an old dog bad habits rather easily. So Buddy has never been given human food his whole life. We never fed him from the table or leftovers or scraps, and I never gave him anything that I was eating. And as a result of this, he never learned how to beg, which is wonderful with a dog. You could eat, and he wouldn't bother you. 
But as he's gotten older, I started to toss him a peanut now and then, and we let him have the morsels that fell on the floor and what have you. We figured, hey, you know, how long has he got left? You know, let him live a little. What's the harm? And of course, now, it doesn't matter what I'm eating. It could be steamed broccoli. It could be cauliflower. He doesn't care. He wants some. As soon as I sit on the couch, his nose is three inches from my food, staring intently. And anytime we're in the kitchen, he's underfoot on scrap patrol, making us trip. One of these times, I'm going to kill him by turning around and just tripping over him as he sneaks up behind me. So yes, you can teach an old dog bad habits. And the same is probably true for humans. On with the show. It is when we learn to leave our comfort zone that we find ourselves communing with our inner strength. Buddy in old age. People like dogs. Well, most people. I like dogs. They give the kind of unconditional love and comforting that is rare to get in this hard world. And at the end of the day, that's all we want, right? Unqualified love and devotion. I wrote an article many years ago when Buddy was young entitled Running with Buddy, where I described the joy of running through the eyes and company of my border collie, Buddy. From when I picked him up at the breeder in Tennessee as a small, timid thing, through all the bright and shiny adventures that we had together. And I wrote about how he changed my life for the better by reminding me the pure joy of a cool morning in the New England woods on the run. And this is not a eulogy. This is not a retrospective. This is an update. Buddy is old. This month, Buddy will be 14 years old. The expected lifespan of a border collie is 10 to 12 years old. And in some cases, they can get as old as 17. Buddy is old, and his days are numbered. But so are all of ours. As I edit this article on a bright, sunny, cold Massachusetts morning, he stands on my front porch. Alternatively, expressing his displeasure at the hikers in the woods behind our house, and then barking at the front door indignantly. So I'll get up and let him in. He doesn't like the cold so much anymore. I fill a water bowl on the front porch for him. For some odd reason, he prefers outside water to inside water. He's a fan of puddles and ponds and any accidental accumulation of water like a surprising and tasty gift from the universe. He'll take long drinks in the morning when I let him out. If it's too cold for water, he'll chew on the ice in the bowl. Border Collies were bred in Wales, Ireland, and Scotland to manage sheep. They're an outside dog, a working dog. They are, as a breed, described as tenacious, energetic, keen, responsive, alert, and intelligent, which makes them very good partners for a runner. They love to run. They love to do anything that involves movement. Balls, frisbees, lawnmowers, and cars all get their tenacious, keen, and responsive attention. Beyond their athleticism, they are very smart dogs, very easy and willing to train. They love to learn. They take great joy in doing something, anything, that resembles a job. It is said that some border collies have demonstrated a vocabulary of over a hundred words. In the hands of the wrong owners, all these attributes can be trouble. In general, they can make terrible house dogs. They need to be doing something. They, they need a job. And they can make up their own job if you don't give them enough to do, and you might not like that. They are so easily trained that you may train them into bad behavior without even knowing it. But Buddy's running days are done. His back hips are arthritic, and this is normal for the breed. The miles we spent together 
did not cause it. If anything, the miles we spent together gave him years of longevity and healthy, happy life. He has gone almost totally deaf, which I think at first confused him. I mean, how would you feel if one day everyone stopped talking to you? We have adjusted. Voice commands no longer work. We communicate with taps on the shoulder and hand signals. The good news is he no longer goes mental during fireworks and thunderstorm season. I still talk to him. I always talk to him. Even when we were out running, I would talk to him. When he was young, especially as a teenager, he was an amazing athlete. That's how he got his nickname, Buddy the Wonder Dog. He would perform feats of athleticism and dexterity that would blow my mind. The speed and agility approached an art form. And he did it all with such confidence and joy. I trained him to heal on a leash the best I could, but he was always in too much of a hurry, too curious. Even so, he'd calm down after a few miles and fall into lockstep trot with me. He would drift to the end of the lead and sink his pace with mine over miles of road and trail. When we ran in the woods, I would let him off leash. Technically, he would be running with me, but would range the trail and woods around me as a bit of a running picket. My favorite memories are when I'm running along a trail, lost in thought, and I would hear the Doppler drum beat of paws coming up fast behind me. With a black and white flash, he squeezes by me, like I'm a traffic cone on the single path, and disappears up the trail, flowing like water. Pure joy. Then there would be times, especially in the dark, when I'd lose track of him. I'd be standing and calling up the trail for him, and he'd appear out of the trail behind me, with a look on his face like, what? Somehow, with the skill of a magician, he'd disappear in front of me and reappeared behind me. When we were out with the club, everybody loved Buddy. Buddy and I were a team, never one without the other. It would give him anxiety to have the group separate by pace in the woods. He'd stay with the lead pack, but circle back to check on the laggards, with obvious mental gears turning about how hard we were making it on him to keep the pack together. To this day, he can sense another person or dog within proximity to us in the woods. I don't know how. He doesn't see them or hear them, but he'll freeze and take on a defensive alert pose and look in the direction of where they are, and then they will appear over the horizon as he assesses the threat levels. I fondly remember taking Buddy out to the Wapak Trail for a 20-ish mile adventure one August. We had, and have, that love of a rough trail in common. I used to bring him to the track with me when I did speed work sometimes, and he didn't get the track or speed work. He would try to pace me on my fast reps for the first couple laps. He would run beside me, nipping at my gloves or sleeves as if to save me from the lunacy. And then he would give up and lay in the infield to watch or to cut across and meet me as I rounded the next corner. And being so smart and physically active and driven to do something useful, border collies can be a pain in the ass. I have spent countless hours trying to watch TV with Buddy staring at me from a foot away, as if to levitate me into some sort of action. And then this raises to his level two frustration, a low, pleading, keening whine. And then the final phase, the end point, one loud, ear-splitting, motivational bark. And this sequence will be repeated until I either throw something at him or get up. And when he was young, he would repeatedly drop a ball in my lap, and I'd throw it at his head, churlishly. He'd catch it and drop it back into my lap. All this from a foot away, because his theory was the closer he got to my throwing hand, the easier it was to intercept the ball. And so I learned to watch TV while autonomously throwing a tennis ball. Toss, chomp, drop. Toss, chomp, drop. Over and over. And we could do this for an hour, until the ball went askew due to his miss, or more probably my throw, and rolled under the furniture. 
and then he would bark at me until I got up and retrieved the ball. He never liked going under the furniture to get a trapped item. Buddy also hated yard work. He didn't so much hate it so much as not really understand it. He wanted to help so badly. He made up ways to help with the tools at his disposal that were not at all helpful. When I would shovel snow, he would try to grab the shovel blade, just as I was about to throw the load. Not only did this make shoveling really hard, he would end up with a bloody mouth. The same with the snowblower. He would alternatively bite at the wheels or try to catch the cascade of snow as it came out of the chute. Picture him sitting in a snowbank, entirely coated with snow, shivering and exhausted. And it was the same with wheelbarrows, wood chopping, lawn mowing, etc. Anything that I was doing outside that involved activity, he wanted in on it. God help us with the chainsaw. Yes, border collies are hardwired neurotics. And I wrote one of my favorite sentences in that story. It was probably 2006, 2007. The story was called Running with Buddy. And it was the second most clicked on article I ever wrote. It was a chapter in my book, The Midpacker's Lament. And it was a chapter in another collection of stories that was compiled to benefit the Boston victims in 2013, 14. And I ended it with, And when you return, you can dream sweet dreams of herding fat, happy sheep in a bucolic land where to live is to run. And I am blessed to have known this dog. He is my friend. He has been my guide and spirit animal. He has led me unwaveringly through the dark woods home many a time, and I'll always have that love in me. And soon he'll be heading home without me to a land with fat, happy sheep, where to live is to run. And now for today's featured interview. Gary? Yes. So why don't you give us the 200 words on who you are and what you're doing and uh, give us a little bit of your background. Well, I am uh, Gary Dedney. I'm an ultra runner out in uh, Monterey, California, and I've been writing about running for the past 20 years, I've had articles in all the major running magazines, and I've been a regular columnist for Ultra Running Magazine for the past uh, 10 years. Right now, I'm focused on 100-mile races. Uh, I'm trying to do 100-mile race in every state in the country. There are a few states that don't have 100-mile races, so it's a goal that uh, will never be accomplished, but I'm enjoying traveling around and uh, meeting people and seeing uh, 100-mile trails everywhere in the country. Well, you can always make up yeah. your own 100-mile race, right? Which is something yes, you've done I'm, in the past. I'm thinking about that. That will come after I get the 42 states or so that have the 100-mile races. I, I think I'm up to about 33 now. And I also should mention that uh, I'm the author of two books on running. One came out two years ago, The Tao of Running, Your Journey to Mindful and Passionate Running. And my new book just came out November the 1st. It's called The Mindful Runner, Finding Your Inner Focus. Both books talk about the mental side of running. And I talk about that by telling stories and relating the points I want to make about using your mind to enhance your running. So it's a lot of fun to read. It's like reading series of stories. Right. It's a lot of short stories about your interesting experiences out in the world of running as you travel around, but also with uh, a particular focus on the mental aspects of running, which is something I've always been super interested in because of the power running has to transform people mentally at all levels, not just at the shorter distances, but also at the, the longer differences. Each one of those differences has a transformational effect, and each one is a, a little bit different. That, that's right. And I think what people do is they spend all their time running. They're focused on the, the physical aspects of it, how far you're running, how fast you're running, just trying to get through a workout. And they don't spend much time thinking about what's going on in their mind, what kind of attitude they're bringing to the run what kind of focus, and then they get into a race, and halfway through the race, 
things get really hard and uh, difficult, and they realize that the mental side of the equation is really critical as soon as you start pushing yourself. And it's something they haven't really practiced or thought that much about because when they were training, that wasn't ever the focus of what they were doing. So my sense is, and that's what I mean by the title, The Mindful Runner, I bring forward from the other book a focus on applying mindfulness to your running. But by mindful runner, I also mean a runner who is always sort of monitoring what kind of ideas they're having, what kind of thoughts, feelings, emotions are going through their mind when they're running, and how is that uh, either helping or hindering them doing what they're doing. Yeah, it's interesting to me because the mindfulness is regardless of ability or pace. You can have a very slower runner or a faster runner or an elite. I think they all go through the same arc of emotions and mind tricks through the course of their training and racing. So it's interesting how this is uh, universal, so to speak, for runners. Yes, it really is. In fact, in The Mindful Runner, some of the first chapters talk about my early experiences with cross-country, and they were pretty disastrous. And I, as I look back on those experiences, I saw that I had absolutely no mental resources at all that I was bringing to the running. I was just out there, you know, a high school kid, running as hard as I could. And then when it got really hard, I sort of shut down and, and didn't have a way besides just gutting it out to get to the finish line as fast as I'd like to. Looking back, I'd see that there was no mental strategy that I was applying to those runs. So I didn't do well. Yeah, because you can say it's physical when you you crash at the end of a race, but if you look at the race in its entirety, part of the mental training is knowing how to pace early and how to approach the edge but not go over it so that you, over the whole process, get the results that you're looking for, right? So, I mean, we always say it's 80% mental, right? Exactly, and it's, it's very important to ward off going into a negative frame of mind and, and letting yourself talk become very negative. And that in itself, with mindfulness, you have a resource to keep your thinking positive and to not slip into that mental state where you start experiencing fear and panic and self-doubt, and all that makes you tense up and it makes it even harder to uh, hold your pace or stay in the race. Whereas if you can keep your thinking positive, then uh, you can break the race down into shorter segments and avoid the fear that comes from thinking, oh, I I feel badly now. I won't be able to stand it when I feel worse, things like that, that are not helpful under any circumstances and not true as well. Usually when you confront the pain, you sort of take the sting out of it, uh, the power it has over you. If you confront it, then you can mitigate it and sort of move it to the background of your thinking and keep going. Right. And that's one of the keys to mindfulness, right? Whatever you're talking about, when it comes to mindfulness, it's the ability to sort of step aside and observe. And if you can take that pain and step aside and observe it, without letting, that takes the sting out of it, right? It moves into a different part of your brain and removes the panic from it. It just is what it is, right? So there's there's this sort of uh, relaxing into the pain and observing it. And it's effort, it's pain. We talked about this last time, how to yeah. do this. But a couple other things that you just hit on, a couple of tactics for people. And this is what makes it so hard for new runners because they haven't experienced it yet, right? So they don't know what's going to happen. And so when it happens, it's kind of raw and fresh. But after you've done it for a while, you can visualize the different points in the race and what you want to happen and what you want to think about and sort of practice for those emotional events as well as the physical events, right? And then chunk the race up into smaller pieces that are easier for your mind to handle. Yeah, which is why I say in the book on a couple of occasions that you're out there training and you start feeling fatigue or you're doing a long run and it's getting painful. You're thinking, well, you know, maybe today's not my day. Maybe I should dial this back and I'll, I'll train harder next time around. Uh, that's a really golden moment to try to use some of these mental techniques to keep yourself in the workout and, and keep pushing hard even when you don't feel like it. So you don't want to, those, those opportunities are as close as you're going to get to what it's going to feel like 
when you get in a race and you're really pushing yourself beyond your um, limits. So a couple of things that uh, I picked up out of your recent book, one that I really love, which kind of goes to my theme for this particular show, is uh, approaching it like your dog, right? So talk me uh-huh. through that. Well, it, uh, I've got a, a couple of uh, chihuahua mixes that are uh, a lot of fun. And like all dogs, most dogs, you tell them they're going on a walk, and that, that's the high point of their day. They're crazy to get out there. And as I get out there and I see them in the field, sniffing around and, and running around and enjoying themselves, it just struck me how perfectly mindful they are in that they are experiencing the world out there very directly through their senses. And because they're dogs, they're not encumbered with, uh, as far as we know, a lot of worries about what happened to them earlier in the day or what may be happening to them uh, in the future. They're just totally focused on the experience they're having at that moment. And that, of course, is a goal in mindfulness. When you're doing an activity, you experience it as fully as possible and focus on the present and focus on all the sights and sounds and smells and feelings and your body moving, your breath, everything that's happening uh, directly at that moment. And uh, sometimes when I'm running, I try to put myself in the place of the dog out there in the field, just without thinking about anything beyond what's going on immediately around me. And of course, that real tension stress buster, because it takes you totally out of your daily worries and and concerns and whatnot and gives you a space where it's, it's just you experiencing the world and getting your exercise, doing something good for yourself. And then at the end of the run, you just feel really great about yourself and um, big self-esteem booster and that sort of thing. Yeah. I mean, when I used to run with my dog, Buddy, the thing that impressed me and really rubbed off on me was just the sheer joy that he had on being out there in the woods with me running. Just the sheer joy he felt. And I'd look at him and I, like you said, I'd say, you know, if I just put myself in that mindset, then everything else is cool, right? It reminds you, and this is the other thing you get into, especially if you've got a a large training load or race goals, you start to forget about the joy in the running and the fact that it's a choice. And sometimes you make yourself miserable because you have the ability to make yourself miserable, but you also have the ability to not take yourself so seriously and have some incredibly joyous moments. I'll give you an example. I had a run last week. I went out. It was late, 8 o'clock at night, dark, kind of raining, and I had a lovely hour-plus run out in the roads around my town, just lovely. It was really joyous, and there was no reason for it to be other than I made it that way, right? Yeah, and that's something running can afford you, that it's just hard to replicate with other forms of exercise, just that feeling of motion out there and and carefreeness that you get when all you have to be concerned about is just running and uh, recharging your batteries and that sort of thing. Yep. So I agree. Run like your dog or put put yourself in the mindset of your dog. Be your dog. What do I want to say? It's a mental strategy. It's a frame of mind that you can go to from time to time. It's not like um, a magic bullet or anything like that. It's just it's just one way to think about how you're experiencing the run. And the more ways you have to ex- thinking about experiencing the run, the more you'll get out of running and the more options you'll have to go to when you're out there as to what you might be thinking about. Yeah, so another chapter in your new book that I found really compelling and kind of spooky was the uh, Prairie chapter. And I'm not sure how much of that was apocryphal or fictional, but it was very interesting, even if it was metaphorical. Did you talk me through that? Did that really happen? It did to some extent. A very common thing to happen to um, ultra runners who are doing the 100-mile races is that uh, at night, they sometimes have the perception that someone's running along the trail with them, and that yeah. happens to me from time to time. So 
I did have the the race went pretty much the way I described it in the book, which was it was a race in Kansas in the Flint Hills, and it was a very spiritual night. It was beautiful out there. You were on the plains, and there was this dome of stars around you that just went to the horizon on every side as far as you could see, and way off in the distance you could see the, the glow of a town. And then there'd be a light bobbing up and down on a um, an oil derrick. And surprisingly, out in the middle of the prairie at night, it's sort of noisy. All these animals are making noises. Insects are making noises in the grass. Um, there's just a lot of chirping and buzzing and howling, uh, coyotes howling, that sort of thing going on out there. So it was uh, quite a spiritual night. And so I sort of imagined if my father had shown up unexpectedly and run with me during the race, whereas, you know, that obviously didn't actually happen. But I imagined that um, in my altered state of mind that he might have, the memories of him might have conjured that up. I think it's a good story. I tried to include three or four stories that I published in um, Lit Mags in this book that had running as their theme, just to sort of suggest that there's all sorts of ways to think about running and uh, what running can do for your life. So what was your favorite part of the book? Well, it excited me to write about uh, Jim Ryan because Jim Ryan was a, a miler who grew up in the same town that I grew up in in the uh, sixth, and he was a world-famous miler and uh, maybe the best high school athlete that has ever lived in the United States. And a lot of people nowadays, the younger people, don't even know who he is. So for me, it was exciting to sort of resurrect his story. When he was in college, there was a, a point in time where he was the world record holder for the mile, the half mile, the 1,500-meter the indoor mile and the indoor half mile. He held five world records all at the same time. Uh, he was also the first high schooler to break the four-minute mile, and um, he did that five times. Nobody else has done it more than twice as a high schooler. He did it as a junior. Uh, nobody else. It's only been done four by four other people since him in 1964, and um, they were all seniors when, when they broke four-minute mile. He was, a, he was a junior. He had sort of a disappointing um, Olympic career, and maybe that's part of the reason his memory faded somewhat. But um, he was a fabulous runner, and he was going to the same schools I was going to. I was just like five years behind him growing up in Wichita, Kansas. So to me, it was interesting. And then I think he's a, a model for what determination can get you if you can keep determination in your mind when you're running. He started his cross-country career as a sophomore in high school, had never run at all. And by the time he was a junior, he was on his way to, the, to his first Olympics and um, had become, by the time senior year in, in uh, high school, had become ready to challenge national and world records. And then at the University of Kansas, uh, he was able to become the best runner in the world. Yeah, and I think he's a great example of the zeitgeist of that running era in that he was known for this incredible volume and intensity in his training. So he was a talented guy, but he also outworked everybody else in terms of the miles he put in and the effort level at which he ran those miles. It reminds me a little bit of that uh, Running with the Buffaloes book where they're uh -huh. at the University of Colorado putting in 120-mile weeks as 18, 19-year-olds, where it might have something to do with the reason they didn't make it into their late 20s as runners, right? But yeah, yeah it's, uh, it's, yeah, he it's was, a good story. Ryan was uh, famous for his interval training workouts. And a, a really interesting thing that I uncovered when I was uh, researching his story is on the way back on the country team, he and his teammates usually said, that the workout didn't start until they were really tired. And that just struck me because it's when you really get tired that it really gets hard. And that's when the mental aspects of running come into play. And you can either stay determined and ignore all those physical messages that your body's giving you 
and you can continue running or you can fall back and not continue to uh, improve. And obviously, he had a, a passion for not giving up in that situation. But yeah. the idea and that it's, uh, you're not really starting the workout until you're tired, that just struck me as there's a lot in uh, ultra running like that. Right. They say in a 100-miler, the last 25 miles is the race, right? That's half the race right there, if not more. Yeah. And actually, with a 100-mile race, I think you get past 50 miles and you're thinking, okay, now I'm really in the race. But then it's not even half of what you're going to have to go through. And then you get to 70 miles and you're thinking, okay, now I'm really starting to feel it. And it's still way early <laughs> to start thinking that you're there. And then about 80 miles and 90 miles, you're still thinking, oh my gosh, this is now the race is starting because it just the, um, the level of difficulty just keeps ratcheting up and your ability to deal with it and your determination has to ratchet up along with it. And I think a lot of this could be summed up in the word courage, the value of courage. And I think that's what draws regular folks to distance events, endurance events, is that they don't have really good ways to practice courage in their normal workaday life. And the endurance world gives them a, a way to put on a, a new uniform and practice that courage. And it's a great feeling. Yeah, I think you're onto something there. I, I think that's true. And what I'm trying to do with my books is just give you a sense of uh, what kind of mental landscape that's going to look like when you get there and then how you are able to um, draw on your courage or draw on that deep well of determination that, that we have and not give up too soon on yourself. So last question here as I move you towards the exit. As we get older, you and I are old guys now, and we've done a lot of races, a lot of marathons, some ultras and mountain biking and all this stuff. How do you keep it fresh? How do you find new layers in this sport, especially mental layers as well as physical layers as you move on in age? Well, I haven't struggled too much with that. Somehow I find every race a new adventure and a new challenge, and I'm just fully engaged in the adventure that I get out of that. One thing I started doing when I retired was I started traveling around the country to do the races, as I mentioned at the very beginning, and showing up and doing new races or, or taking on new distances is certainly one way to keep things fresh because then there's novelty there, and um, I think that's helped me out a lot. If I was going back to the same races over and over again, I think there might be a factor of getting a little fatigued about that. I used to do the Big Sur International Marathon every year because it was nearby. And after 22 years, that just started to get old to me. <laughs> Even as fabulous as that race was, it, it was hard for it to keep my interest. So, yeah, I would say finding a new distance to run or going outside your backyard to see new courses and, and meet new people is very helpful. Yeah, that's having adventures. I like to have adventures, too. It makes everything contextually better. So uh, tell us where we can find your works. And uh, I did buy a couple copies of your last book for my pacers who helped me through uh, my 100-miler over the summer. So give us uh, where can we, what the books are and where we can find them. Hopefully some people will pick that up for the holidays. That's always helpful. Yes, The Mindful Runner is the new book, and The Tao of Running is the book that I published two years ago. They're available on Amazon and um, Barnes & Noble online. You can find them in most um, Barnes & Noble's brick-and-mortar stores or other private bookstores around the country. And um, I have a website. It's called thedowofrunning.com, all one word, and Dow is spelled E-A-O, thedowofrunning.com, where I've gathered together all my race reports, that I've written for Ultra Running Magazine, which is about 40 of them, and all my columns that I've written for Ultra Running Magazine. So a lot of advice there about running, especially long distances, and a lot of uh, race reports in case you're, you know, if you're shopping around for a race to do and you want to read up on what my impressions were, that's all there on my website. And then if you'd like to send me an email directly, I'm gdedney at comcast.net. All right, man. Enjoy your day. Thanks for the talk. Okay. Thank you very much, Chris. Thank you. Bye-bye. Sometimes it takes a third party to tell us what we already know.
courage. Much of the personal work and introspection of trying to be the best version of yourself, which honestly is never done, circles back around to one thing. Courage. Courage is doing something in the face of fear. Courage is leaving your comfort zone. Courage is moving away from the known into the unknown. As humans, we have an interesting relationship with courage. We are wired to avoid risk. Fear of the unknown is bred into us. At many points in our evolution, the unknown could actually kill us. The dark forest, the deep ocean, and the sucking swamp. These were not just existential threats, they were real physical threats. Not so much anymore. We still approach our lives as if there's danger. Courage is the ability to move forward through that fear. Ironically, we have the most courage when we have nothing left to lose. When we are cornered, when there is no choice, we fight back. Our fear gets out of the way and we let loose our natural courage. Courage is not exclusively physical bravery. Although that is also wired into us to admire the physically brave, courage is choosing to act in the face of fear. That is a unique human trait, to be able to make a conscious decision to act even though our basic instinct is warning us not to. In our modern lives, there are smaller forms of courage. It takes courage to say no, especially if you're a nice guy like me or gal. It's very hard to say no. You don't want to disappoint or anger anyone. You need their approval. It takes courage to say no. It takes courage to follow your passion or do what you love, especially if it is outside the norm of your social group. The fear here is that you will be alone and isolated. And this could also get you killed in evolutionary times. We are tribal critters, and it takes courage to step outside the norms to leave the safety of the tribe. It takes courage to do something different. When you have been running in the same groove, the same pattern, the same relationships for years, it takes courage to change. To change means conquering your fear of moving from the known to the unknown. And it takes courage to persevere, to keep at something in the face of adversity, to stay in a place of mental or physical discomfort. That takes courage. Any endurance athlete knows this. Along with this, it takes courage to suffer, suffering with dignity and as a choice, learning to find and feel what suffering has to teach us about ourselves. That takes courage. It's a miracle that any of us choose to step out of our houses in the morning. Each act of our days requiring the courage of living through something new. But we do it because what we know is, first, that place outside the known, that place outside the comfort zone is the place where learning and growth are accelerated and deepened. That is the place where our courage surprises us. We realize it was there all along and we never took time to call upon it. Secondly, courage allows us to realize when there are open doors and enables us to walk through them. In this abundant world, we are surrounded by open doors. Our fear causes us not to see them, or when we do, to shy away from them. Practicing courage illuminates those doors so that we can walk through and see the undiscovered country on the other side. And third, practicing courage creates a clearing for others to practice as well. Your courage becomes the example that others can and will follow. And finally, perhaps best of all, courage is inherently honest. When you have the courage to say what needs to be said, to do what needs to be done, and to choose your path, you are being very honest. You are choosing honest action over fear. And perhaps that is why we lionize courage in our heroes as much as we do, because it is the ultimate honesty. It is the choice to stand up and say, I go this way. And my friends, 
Practice courage. Say no. Do what you believe to be right. Lean into the fear and find that undiscovered country. Courage. What makes a king out of a slave? Courage. What makes the flag on the mast away? Courage. What makes the elephant charge his tusk in the misty mist or the dusky dusk? What makes the muskrat guard his musk? Courage. What makes the sphinx the seventh wonder? Courage. What makes the dawn come up like thunder? What makes the hot and top so hot? What puts the ape in apricot? What have they got that I ain't got? Courage. You could say that again. Okay, now we're going to move you towards the exit, please. All right, my friends, I appreciate you sticking with me through the emotional journey of episode 4-399 of the Run Run Live podcast. I'm not sure, but I'm I'm pretty sure it took great courage on your part. I ran the Thanksgiving 5K with my daughter and a bunch of people from my running club, and I had a good time. It's always great to see friends, and it's always great to spend time with my kids. I also decided to stop stressing out about the pace and time, which helped a lot, <laughs> because this is just about the only 5K I run each year, so it bothers me if I don't race well. So when we woke up before this race on Thanksgiving Day, it was 9 degrees Fahrenheit, which is very cold for this early in the season. There was uh, a nice little breeze, too. So for if you're one of those softies who believe in wind chill, it would have been about zero. There was no warming up. I didn't even bother. I just went out at what felt like a good hard pace and tried to hold it. I think I ended up with 720s or something around there, but who cares? My fingers never denumbed. I had a couple toes that were numb, but uh, it was fun. I've been trying to follow a good morning routine the last couple of weeks with stretching and meditation and reading and writing, and it helps. It helps a lot. I haven't made much progress on my new book about startup sales, uh, ironically because the startup I'm in is keeping me uber stressed out and busy. But thanks for playing along. Next episode will be our 400th official episode, and I get this feeling that I need to think hard about what I want to do next. So I decided to write that quick update on Buddy because I got an email from, like I said, longtime friend of the show, Janet. She was inquiring about his health and well-being. So I think it's fitting for me to tell you the Buddy story of the week. So Monday night, I was getting ready to leave work. It was after 6.30. I had a need to pick up a bag of dog food because we were almost at the bottom of the barrel. And this is okay because the food store is on my way home. Then I realized I had forgotten to bring the 10% off coupon for said dog food that I received in the mail and was quite excited about. Because I believe that the coupon algorithm in the great coupon-generating artificial intelligence computer typically only sends coupons when you don't need something. So the universe had made an error in my favor, and I aimed to take advantage of it. So I decided to go home first, which is not on my way, but I could pick up the dog and take him to the pet store as an outing. It's one of the few places where they allow dogs. And as I am leaving work, it is sluicing rain. Again, rainiest month in history, like, you know, like a normal week in Seattle or London. I get home and go to let Buddy out. He's been in the house all day. And he looks out at the weather and digs in his heels like, hey, 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 ho, it's only been eight to ten hours. I can hold it. I'm not going from a warm bed out into the cold rain. So I push him out under the wet front steps. I do some quick things around the house. I grab the coupon off the fridge and retrieve him for the trip to the store. And it's still pouring rain. And I'm not dressed for it, having just come from work. And he digs in his heels as I try to load him into the truck. 
armful of wet dog into the seat. We drive off to the pet store to get the food, and it's late. No one is in the parking lot, and the store is empty. I unload the dog and lead him on the leash into the store, and he wants to wander around the parking lot and sniff everything, but it's pouring rain still, so I hurry him along. We enter the empty store, and I lead him back to the section where his food bags are stacked, leaving a trail of wet footprints as we go. And I have to keep pulling him away from all the interesting things to sniff on the way. Now, I know to keep an eye on him, because the pet store is full of pet smells. There have been hundreds of other dogs in there getting groomed and trained and just wandering around, and I know if I don't watch him, he may try to mark something. It's not that he has that bad habit. It's just that his reptilian brain gets overwhelmed by the scent of the other dogs. For a dog nose, this place must be the equivalent of Technicolor. I find the food, and sure enough, as I'm hoisting a 30-pound bag onto my shoulder, one-handed with the leash in the other hand, he starts peeing on the floor. Damn it! So I yank him away, and I go to check out. Now, I have a moral decision to make. A decision that requires, dare I say, courage. I could pretend it didn't happen, or confess to the young lady at the register. And as I'm practicing doing things that scare me this month, I decided to come clean, so to speak. And she says that they have sanitary stations spread throughout the store just for this purpose, and asks if I want her to clean it up, or would I like to do it myself, with the clear emphasis on do-it-yourself. And I grabbed a handful of paper towels from the sanitary station and the bottle of organic squirty stuff, and I mopped up my friend the dog's unfortunate leavings. I had to make two trips to get more towels. He was serious about his duties today. And when all is clean, as it's going to get, we wander back to the register and retrieve the big bag of food. And I ask her, do most people just ignore it and leave? And she says, yeah, that mostly happens with the poop. (laughs) Cue the ominous foreshadowing. So we exit the building. It is impossibly raining even harder and colder. Me in my dress pants and shirt with a big bag of food balance on my shoulder like a suburban lumberjack and the leash in the other hand. I decide to pause to let him sniff at the pots outside the door. I feel bad that I had to practice urinatus interruptus on him in the store. But he has other plans and begins to poop on the sidewalk in front of the store. I say no and try to pull him away, but he manages to leave a trail of breadcrumbs, so to speak, across the parking lot. Eventually I wrangle him and the bag of food into the truck, and now I'm stuck with another moral conundrum. But since I've already got momentum, I grab a plastic bag that I keep in the truck just for these types of outings and stoop amid the puddles to undo the poo. And that is my old buddy story from this week. There's no moral to it, but I think I earned some karma. And I'll see you out there. And then he thought that he just couldn't die. So Ned, he laughed so hard it made him cry. All right, take one.